Social Ventures Australia brings you this podcast from the SVA Quarterly, the leading management publication for the social sector in Australia. Hi, I'm Olivia Hilton, Executive Director of SVA Consulting. To celebrate SVA Consulting's 10th anniversary, recently I spoke to four of the people involved in founding SVA Consulting in 2007 and shepherding it through its initial years. Those people are Michael Trail, then CEO of SVA, Greg Hutchison, who joined the SVA Consulting Advisory Group when it was set up, Rob McLean, then SVA's chair, and the founding CEO, Duncan Peppercorn. Firstly, Michael, from your perspective, tell me, how did the idea for SVA Consulting come about? So I think there's really two parts to the story. One was that right from the front end, of SVA, even in 2002, 2003, in the first couple of years, we were conscious that one of the deep needs in the sector and for the organisations we were supporting was greater clarity around performance metrics, around what was working, around strategy. And as we'd started to work and we had access to some really good quality pro bono resource, particularly from McKinsey via our founding chair, Rob McLean. We realised that there was a lot of value in that work. That was considerably assisted when Macquarie Group Foundation, I think in 2005, provided funding to support what was then called the SVA toolset. And that was both building the IP. And in a lot of ways, that work was really the precursor to SVA consulting. The other part of that was that I'd spent some time at Stanford and with Roberts Enterprise Development Fund in 2002, and they developed a lot of the original work around social return on investment through Jed Emerson. And so I remember coming back with a suitcase full of books and literature on SROI by a woman called Melinda Twan, who then ran the Roberts Enterprise Development Fund. That was important because we really liked the framework. We thought it was a bit over-engineered, but I think it also reflected the spirit of global thought leader sharing and IP that we were able to tap into from the early days. So I think those things are important as a background because we'd started thinking from the early days about diagnostics and tools that would be tailor-made for the sector and we always felt there was mileage in that. That was something we should be doing more of. So that was sort of the understanding in the market. There was a gap for yeah. tools that were customised for social sector organisations. There's plenty in the for-profit sector. They were starting to be used, not just by our ventures, but picked up by other organisations as well. What I think was generally emerging in that period was that it was increasingly understood and respected by people that we worked with that these tools, the more hands-on work we did with McKinsey borrowed resources and other mentors and consultants who came out of the Baines and the Accentures, people like Caroline Chernoff, Sari Rankin, the use of SRI framework. Other people were looking at this and saying, this is actually pretty cool. Can you either provide that or do that for, you know, often with funders, it'd be another organisation that they were supporting. And that was certainly influential in planting a seed that we really only scratched the surface on a greater need an unmet need for better quality diagnostics and evaluation across ventures we were supporting, but more broadly the sector. And this is where Greg Hutchinson and Robin Crawford entered the picture. So Greg, managing partner of Baines, pretty close friend of Tom Tierney, who was a founder of Bridgespan, 
and Greg and Robin I'd known for a long period of time. So the three of us had kind of started a conversation around how and on what basis or is there a case for setting up some sort of Australian version of Bridgespan? Bridgespan had been set up by Bain to provide consulting services to support philanthropic foundations and not-for-profit organisations in the US. Greg, what do you remember about those initial conversations with Michael Trail and Robin Crawford? I can recall a number of conversations that occurred more than 10 years ago, and the assertion and the question was the same one. The assertion was, Australia needs a bridge span. Now, bridge span was also very young in those days. It's still very young, and uh, it was started around 2000. The question that came out of that was, how can we do that? How can we bring bridge span to Australia? And that was the first question. And so I was tasked with going off and catching up with Tom Tierney, who's a, a lifelong friend and uh, a, a wonderful person, along with Jeff Braddock, of course, they together founded Bridgespan. I took that question to Tom. And so he asked me a number of questions in return about the structure of financing in Australia, particularly for the nonprofit sector, the nature of the need, the scale of the economy, all those things that you need to know in order to figure out the answer to the question of, you know, can we get Bridgespan to come to Australia? And the answer was, very clearly, no. The reason behind that were largely to do with scale, but also largely to do with just the enormity of the task that they faced in the US and that strategically, therefore, that was the, the right place for them to focus attention. And if they started to fragment geographically, that, that would be a, a bad outcome all around. The next version of the same conversation was a different question, which is, how could we create something like Bridgespan in Australia? So I took that question off to Boston for my next meeting with Tom, which I used to go there probably about once every six months or a year and uh, for business reasons. Anyway, we whiteboarded that one and, and again came to a conclusion that actually it can't be done. So anyway, the third time I was due to go to Boston, I can remember <laughs> distinctly, we were sitting in the Bain office. If my recollection is correct, it was Robin and Michael Trail on the other side of the table, they said, okay, we know you're going to Boston and we know you're going to meet up with Tom Tierney and you've got to answer this question. And they caught me literally as I opened my mouth before any sound came out because they knew that I was about to provide a compelling answer as to why Bridgespan won't come to Australia and why we can't create Bridgespan mm -hmm. in Australia. They said, ah, ah, before you say anything, you're trying to answer the wrong question. So here's the question you've got to answer. Go to Boston, sit down with Tom, and figure out how we can create something like Bridgespan in Australia. Not why we can't do it, but how we're going to do it. And to help you, here's something that will be really worthwhile as you go into that discussion. And they handed me a pencil and a blank sheet of paper. <laughs> and I said, and don't come back without the answer. <laughs> and so, I, so I went to Boston, and I can remember distinctly, I sat opposite Tom and uh, said, okay, you know, a couple of people who I respect immensely, who are just the best of the best, and that's you know, Michael Trout and Robin Crawford, have given us the following task. So that's Tom, you and me. <laughs> so we went, oh, yeah. okay. So we brainstormed it for a couple of hours and just came up with a couple of, threads, if you like, in a, um, in a plan on a page. And so, um, so I then dutifully came home, sat down with Robin, Michael, and that's really how it all started. I've lost the piece of paper long since, which is a shame because uh -huh. it's, uh, it contained Tom's wisdom <laughs> and Tom's mine. But what we'd have done is there were just you know, a couple of component, constituent elements 
that sounded right then and have actually proven to be right to this day. Rob, you were SBA's chair at the time. What do you remember about the genesis of SBA Consulting and, and in particular how the board viewed the idea? We had only been um, going for three years when uh, when SVA Consulting was dreamed up. I really credit Robin Crawford, who served on the um, SVA Consulting Advisory Board with bringing the idea you know, to Michael and the board's attention um, of having a consulting arm. I certainly felt that it was an idea that had merit and that we should pursue. We had what you would expect at the board, a good conversation. I do recall there was a question of you know, whether this was mission creep, and that's always a good phrase to get a board thinking about whether they're staying on mission. And we convinced ourselves that you know this was a companion venture you know that would add to the strength of SVA and add to the strength of the ventures that we were supporting you know through bringing an external professional external perspective what made it easy i think for the board to support SVA consulting being founded was robin not only came up or brought the idea to us uh, but he offered to make a significant uh, financial underwriting. And we were able to get Julie White from Macquarie Bank to provide significant support as well. So not-for-profit boards, and we were no exception, just love something where a risky new venture is underwritten. And that's what we had you know, with the generous support of Robin and, and the Macquarie Foundation. So then that took us down the path, of course, of hiring a um, a CEO and we looked at and talked to uh, to a number of people and far and away the most experienced and you know, passionate uh, candidate was um, was Duncan Peppercorn who I had hired at McKinsey and who Greg Hutchinson had worked with at Bain so we knew his social sector interest we knew his capability and we knew his style that's how I think the, we got to that point Michael, what do you remember of taking Duncan on? There are obviously a lot of things that we were considering strategically around that. Most particularly, and we all agreed that the only way to get this up and running was if we found a really high-quality person to start it. So that's where, obviously, Duncan entered the picture, and I remember vividly catching up with him in the early days. And I had a kind of 40- or 50-page not particularly well put together, cut and paste document called Y-Frame for SVA. And it was a bit of a dog's breakfast of quotes and data around why what we were trying to do mattered. And it was a bit of a kind of a head and heart pitch for people about, hey, you've done well, you're smart, you've got a social conscience, do you want to make a difference? And here's what we're trying to do. And here's the way we think about the world and what matters. And I remember leaving that with him and I think it, it crystallised the response. And I mean, he was, Duncan obviously had done a huge amount of work in the art sector. One of those serendipity things, as you well know, where he came on board. And without that, I mean, it wouldn't have happened. Duncan, what was it that motivated you to start and run SBA Consulting? I think I became very, very passionate about the about the change that I wanted to see happen. I just think there were a lot of consultants captured by the sector. In other words, rather mm-hmm. than coming in from the outside and saying it's not good enough, they were sitting within the sector going, I can do what you do faster, neater, tidier, 
but they weren't doing it better. You know, the basic question that we asked, where are you going? What are you going to achieve? What does success look like? I felt that there were very, very big issues around strategy and around clarity of direction and KPIs and, you know, real goal-oriented and measurement of outcomes and all of that kind of good stuff, which I felt increasingly frustrated about not being in the sector. Greg, you spoke earlier about the initial elements you devised with Tom from Bridgespan. What were those elements? In no particular order, one of them was, he said, look, you need some seed capital. You know, you can't get something Mm -hmm. like this important underway because from a moral and ethical standpoint, you can't ask people to transition out of a career where they're not only earning well and providing for their families, i.e. consulting, but also where they're actually learning and therefore becoming more valuable and important for society unless you can give them some degree of of certainty. And so he said, you need capital, you need working capital, you need growth capital. And that's likely to come from, in Tom's case, it was uh, was all philanthropic and personal and corporate. And I said, okay, well, government may also be an element here in Australia, but feels to me like it probably is that same combination of essentially philanthropic funding and corporate funding. And of course, it proved to be exactly the case. The second design principle was that within the Bridgespan model, there are a couple of major elements, one of which is the work that's done with philanthropists to really help them to be more strategic in their philanthropy. The second major element is that pretty much the same people, but aimed at a very different customer segment, which is the service delivery organizations. And it's really how to help them to become more strategic and also more impactful in an operational sense. And that really was the underpinning for Bridgespan because the original concept was very simple, which is that you know, how can you repurpose you know, really world-class strategic consulting and apply it to the non-for-profit sector? And so the operating model for Bridgespan also recognized that the two primary customer segments, in other words, philanthropists and service delivery organizations, operate in fundamentally different ways. And so... It's different IP, but more importantly, it's a very different operating model. And the third part, of course, was the whole open source, the whole knowledge management system. Now, in order to make that world-class and open source, again, you need funding. I guess the second design principle is think about what it is you actually want to do and where it is you can have the greatest impact and also what is sustainable. And so that led to the second of those three if you like, components uh, being the primary focus, in other words, service delivery organizations. Not to the exclusion of philanthropists and not to the exclusion of a knowledge management system that would then be available to all, but that that was kind of the, at least the working assumption on the starting point. And of course, all three exist today. So that was the second design principle, which is be really focused around what you can do and also what you can fund. The, um, The third design principle was that it only works if you actually engage in the war for talent and uh, and actually attract and retain really, really high-caliber people. In other words, don't get involved in complex societal issues unless you have the capacity to put really, really first-rate people against those issues yeah. and unless you have the capacity to actually train them in what's similar and particularly what's different in operating with in this case, service delivery organizations. We also created a very strong link to Bain and to a pretty significant extent to McKinsey. And that was very important for both 
training. And as you recall, you know, we opened up mm. all of our training capability and curriculum to the SBA consulting team early on. And then, of course, funding. And again, as predicted, a mix of philanthropy and also, you know, with, with some skin in the game from the service delivery organizations. And that's important from a behavioral standpoint, but also from a sustainability standpoint, of course. But we knew from Bridgespan's experience that whatever you could sensibly and reasonably charge a service delivery organization, it won't cover your costs, even with people working at a fraction of what they could earn if they stayed in the commercial sector. But that's where philanthropy stepped in and people like Robin and others were very important. And of course, it also needed good governance and help and guidance and so forth, not just governance, but more importantly, through networks and bringing um, other capacity to bear that was needed by SVAC in the early days. And that's where you know, the advisory group was constructed. Duncan, what did you see as the need initially? Was it primarily strategy in the beginning? And how did you and Lisa George, who joined you, go about building the market initially? It was a very, very, very different place at SVA in those days. I mean, you know, SVA had this learning and leadership thing where we were doing workshops. They were the main way that we actually engaged with the sector other than funding people through the venture philanthropy side were these Mm -hmm. learning and leadership workshops. I sort of said, look, let's stick into these something a bit about strategy, a bit about what strategy is really about. Let's see whether we can use that as the mechanism by which we can get a few clients on board. But it did take a long time to even begin to get a modicum of momentum, to be honest. And yeah. during that period, I was, I was, you know, really worried. I wasn't sure whether or not we were actually going to get anywhere. I went out and talked to the large funders and got sort of nowhere. I talked to the large mm. nonprofits and sort of got nowhere other than, of course, the Benevolent Society, which I had already been doing quite significant amounts of work with previous to that. And, of course, the first organization that sort of really picked it up was Wayside, who came to one of the mm. workshops and then just said, look, you know, this is exactly what we need. We really you know, could do with you guys. And so I sort of, uh, Lisa and I went in. We uncovered a lot of yeah. interesting stuff, and they were fantastic to work with. And furthermore, they were a real, you know, a real for-purpose organisation, not a not a sort of you know service delivery organisation, but something that was born out of passion and determination, and therefore a fantastic uh, feather to have in our cap. If I think back on it, having people like I mean, Graham was critical at Wayside Chapel, mm. absolutely critical. You know, the fact he was prepared to stand up and say how great what we'd done was. So it was really getting some people outside of SVA to start saying, you know, that we knew what we were doing or what we were doing was good. I certainly felt at times as though we simply were not going to get the traction. It was Traley and Rob continually saying, no, 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 it, it is hard. It's going to take time. You know, we're doing the right things in the right order. We're getting some traction. But I don't think it sort of began really turning into a business till maybe sort of year two or three. That was partly driven by the fact that I said, look, that if we're going to get traction, we've actually got to do work. And the obvious place for us to do work is as part of 
what we offer through venture development to the organizations that we support. And that's really where we started getting some traction. So we did mm-hmm. it through part of our offering through venture development. So they didn't actually have to make the purchase decision, but we actually got to do good work. And then that work was in turn recognized by them yes. and their supporters. And yeah. that was good work. And it was work that we could then sort of put up on a flag, you know, run up the flagpole and say to people, look, you know, we did this. And it was different. Rob, given your experience in the private sector consulting world, did you see it as a challenge trying to get a not-for-profit organisation to pay for really high-quality strategic advice? Yes, it was. We still don't have enough foundations to fund consulting exercises, but that led to, of course, a business model. I used to say to Duncan, he was doing these one-week assignments where we were charging probably about $1,500 per consulting day. And that meant that it fitted within the budget of the not-for-profit. But it meant that we were doing an assignment a week and then starting on another assignment. And um, I I called it high-velocity consulting. That was my way of saying to Duncan, this is not going to be sustainable. You're going to burn yourselves out trying to write LOPs on a Friday and start an assignment on a Monday and then finish Mm. it the following Friday. That has clearly evolved with SVA's reputation and the opportunities that you've created for longer assignments and for teams that have a mix of skills rather than a, you know, being not much more than a one-man band at the beginning. Did the board at the time have a view on what types of clients you thought that, again, sort of an advisory practice would be able to have the most or help change the most? My observation was more that the sector was underserved, you know, that the clients were were too small for the the large consulting firms and by and large it was before the accounting firms had decided that this was an interesting area uh, for them. It was wide open in my recollection at that time for a more professional um, organisation. And what did you see as the main contribution that SVA Consulting could make? What I think SVA Consulting did so well was, to this day, I couldn't say, you know, this is how SVA Consulting approaches strategy. But what I think SVA does very, very well is hold up a mirror to a client and say, this is where you really are. Do you agree? And if that's the case then with the look we've taken at you and what you're trying to do, this seemed to be the priorities that would make sense for you at this time. That's a process of rigorous thinking and getting clarity about priorities. And there's really nothing more important for an organisation than doing that. So that's something I think in this first 10 years that SVA Consulting has brought that's really very, very powerful. Related podcasts and articles can be found on the SVA Quarterly site, www.socialventures.com.au forward slash SVA hyphen quarterly forward slash.